seeing it. I don't know about you, but I've been humming that song all series long as we're blazing trails. Hopefully you're having a happy summer full of happy trails. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. Welcome to Christ Church, church about lifting lives, elevating Christ to church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm thrilled that you're here now. Joining us here in the West Auditorium. Maybe you're in East this morning. Good morning to all you worshiping in East, or perhaps you're joining us online as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of Christ Church. You're a meaningful part of our worshiping community. So thanks for showing up. Thanks for tuning in. We are in this sermon series, Happy Trails, and we are deep into this series. And as a whole, the series has been a chance for us as a Christian body to look at the beginning of the Christian movement. That's really what we've been doing as we've been looking at kind of how the church was birthed and launched at the early stages of development for the Christian movement. And it's been centered, most of our conversation has been centered on one particular character. His name is Paul. Paul is the guy that's kind of carrying the torch, and we're going to be tracking with him. We have been. We will continue to track with him. Though Paul is not alone in his endeavors as he's been out becoming a missionary. Paul is becoming someone who is spreading the gospel and starting new churches, church planting, if you will. He's been doing that as part of a dynamic duo, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas has been beside him along the way on their first missionary journey. So what happened is as the Christian church began to get started, people began to be converted and excited about this whole Jesus thing, people like Paul and Barnabas stepped forward and said, we will carry this message forward into more lives, into more cultures, into more territory and more land. And so they set off by boat and by foot to go and start uh, new churches and spread that gospel. Here is an example of where they, that is Paul and Barnabas, specifically went around the Mediterranean area. They hopped a boat and they traveled all over. They ended up walking all over and they did this long, big, squiggly loop and landed back where they had started in Antioch of Syria. And that's where we left them last week. They have concluded their first major missionary journey. And as they went about on the missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas got into a rhythm. They got into a way of navigating themselves, and particularly as they visited all these different cities that are probably in what we consider modern-day Turkey. As they're visiting these cities and starting these churches, the way that they started churches was by going to Jewish synagogues. You see, Paul and Barnabas were Jewish men. They were Jewish people, and so they did what good Jewish people are supposed to do according to the Jewish law. They went to church, and so when the Sabbath would come, they would go to the synagogue, and they would go and they would worship with other Jews. Now, Paul is no ordinary Jew. In fact, Paul is considered to be in esteemed position within the Jewish tradition and the Jewish faith. Paul is a teacher, he's a pastor, he is what is often referred to as a Pharisee in the Jewish tradition. And so when he would go and visit these places, he would act kind of like a guest speaker or a guest preacher. And so the local people would say, hey, Paul, you are esteemed, your reputation is incredible, you studied under another famous rabbi, a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Perhaps you this week could come and teach about Moses and about the Jewish tradition. Would you please stand up and say something? And Paul's like, oh, would I ever. And so Paul gets up at the Jewish synagogue and he starts teaching these Jewish people about Jesus. And he begins telling them about how Jesus came and his life and his death and resurrection. And he begins preaching and teaching. And all these Jewish people begin hearing the good news of Jesus and believing that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. And that he's actually fulfilled 
the Jewish predictions and prophecies that were given so long ago. And it's incredible as these Jewish people become Christ followers, Christians. But they're not alone as they have this chance and opportunity to preach and teach to these Jewish people. Paul and Barnabas are also talking to what the Bible calls God-fearing Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is a non-Jew. They are not ethnically Jewish. They are not tied into the Jewish tradition. They are not held accountable to Jewish customs and the Jewish way of life. But however, these individuals have an appreciation for Jewish tradition. God-fearing Gentiles are people in the community that seem to look at the Jewish people and be like, yeah, they got it going on. They've got something real and meaningful with their God, and we want to learn and be about that too. And so there were actually Gentiles or non-Jews that would come and be around the Jewish people during synagogue, during worship. And these God-fearing Gentiles, while considered part of the synagogue relationships and so forth, they were in this really odd spot. There was still a definitive partition. They wanted to be around God's people. They wanted to be part of God's people. But they were not technically Jewish. They were God-fearing Gentiles. And so even though they had a background of Roman or pagan religion, they appreciated the Jewish way of life and wanted to be close to it. All of this is happening when Paul and Barnabas get up and say, hey, guess what? In Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The partition doesn't matter anymore. The Gentile people are also supposed to be part of the people of God that the Gentiles get included in what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Gentiles also, non-Jews, get to enjoy the benefits and the gifts and the grace and the goodness of this Jesus guy. That Gentiles now are included in what God has done and accomplished and what God is hoping to continue to bring about. And the God-fearing Gentiles are like, hallelujah, let's do it. I'm part of God's people now. And it's an incredible moment as both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles become Christ followers and Christians. Now, we've actually seen in earlier examples outside of Paul and Barnabas where the Gentiles have become included by virtue of other activity in the Bible. Here's one such example. There's another famous individual named Peter. Perhaps you've heard of Peter before. He's incredibly important in the early church. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's considered to be one of the 12 apostles. He's a really big deal in Christianity. Peter walked with Jesus. Many of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, have detailed accounts and stories about Peter and his interactions with Jesus. He's a big deal, this Peter guy. And Peter, in his efforts to share the news of Jesus, goes and meets with a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. That is to say that he is required by his position to worship Caesar. He has to worship the Roman pantheon. But 
Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile, and while he's required to do these things over here, he also gives generously to the synagogue, and he sits at the feet of the Pharisees, and he's well-respected by the Jewish people. Peter comes to Cornelius and gives him the good news of Jesus Christ and says, Cornelius, guess what? He died for you too. And all of a sudden, Cornelius believes and is included in the people of God. He has a conversion story, and he and his entire family, his whole household, get baptized. And it's an incredible, amazing, hallelujah kind of moment in the Bible. And so we've seen examples how the Gentile people have become included now by virtue of Jesus Christ. But there's a catch bubbling beneath the surface of all of these Gentiles now showing up and Gentiles now, well, being included in God's people, some of the Jewish Christians have some questions. I mean, after all, isn't Jesus the Jewish Messiah? I mean, if these Gentiles want the Jewish Messiah, if they're going to become part of the Jewish tradition with the Jewish Messiah, they're going to become part of the Jewish people, doesn't that mean that these Gentiles now have to follow the Jewish law? Because after all, to be Jewish is to follow the Jewish law. I mean, 613 laws that you have to follow, given from a famous individual named Moses, handed down from generation to generation of Jews, followed, so dedicated, religiously, right? 613 laws that cover everything from diet to sanitation to business dealings. These 613 laws really established, according to the Jewish mentality, what it meant to be Jewish. You knew you were Jewish if you behaved like a Jew and followed the law. Oh, and by the way, that all started with circumcision. In order to really know and embrace and to definitively say that you were Jewish, you would get circumcised and you would live according to the 613 laws that meant you were Jewish. So, if you want the Jewish Messiah, and you want to be part of God's people, that means you've got to follow the laws. And guys, line up, drop trow, it's time to get circumcised. Now, as you can imagine, some of the Gentiles stood up a little straighter at this point in time and had a few comments and questions. You want me to do what exactly? I have to now follow these 613 laws, and by the way, Grandpa and I both have to get circumcised, and my kid, and all the generations, and our whole family? That's how this is going forth? And there seems to be a friction. As new questions are being raised at the birth of the church of what truly defines a Christian, the Jewish people have a very clear understanding, according to them, on what it means to be Jewish. But is Christianity merely under the umbrella of Judaism, or has God done something new and different? Paul and Barnabas 
meet this head-on when they come home from their missionary journey. It says this, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, they've come home. Some men from Judea, that is down south near Jerusalem, where you would have had both Christians and the Jewish traditional population. So some traditional influences here. Some men from Judea arrive, and they begin to tell all of the new Christian believers in Antioch of Syria, hey, unless you're circumcised, as is required by the law of Moses, y'all can't be saved. You're not really, truly a Jesus follower unless you are circumcised and take upon yourself the full expectation and weight of the law of Moses. Now, I can't depreciate, I, I refuse to depreciate the Jewish train of thought here because I think it is merely the reality of being a human. Jewish people have become so defined by the Jewish way of life, and God is the one who gave them that clear instructions for the Jewish way of life. The idea and the understanding was that God gave you these 613 laws so that every moment of every day you would be conscious, you would be aware of God. You would have to be following these laws when you go to the grocery store. You don't just simply go to the grocery store and get whatever you want. You follow the Jewish laws, and that would remind you of, oh, yeah, I'm a person of God. I belong to God's people. And so something as simple as going to the grocery store would remind you of your identity and remind you of the living God and really ground you in the presence and in the power of your God. That is what the 613 laws were meant for. But as what happens so often in broken humanity, the Creator was supplanted, replaced by the created. The Creator God who gave the laws all of a sudden was replaced by the importance of the law. And the Jewish people began to define Judaism not according to their relationship with the living God, but according to the laws that tried to exercise that relationship. The Jewish people defined themselves and their identity by what they did rather than by their God. And the reason why we do this big, long historical lesson up front, the reason why we need to talk about this, the reason why I don't want us to throw stones at this way of thinking is because, honestly, don't we continue literally 2,000 years later to struggle with the same issue of defining ourselves and our lives by what we so often do? How frequently do we define our lives by our actions and activities, past, present, or what we hope to do in the future? How often when we think of ourselves and we reflect on who we are, 
what comes so quickly bidden to our mind is our actions. I get the privilege of meeting with a lot of people. I get a lot of coffee with people, hanging out and spending time and getting to know people. And I love asking the question of, hey, who are you? Can you tell me about yourself? What kind of person are you? And undoubtedly what people do when they begin this conversation, when we sit down and talk, is they lead with what they do in terms of so often work, vocation. That's usually how it goes. And then maybe they'll describe some hobbies or activities that they enjoy. And you know the truth? I do it too. When they ask me the question of, can you tell me about yourself, do you know what I say? I say, yeah, sure, I work at a church. I don't tell them a pastor that freaks people out. So I just, I go easy. I just, I work at a church. And they want to know a little more. I like hiking. I like backpacking. I like canoeing. I love doing stuff in the outdoors. They want to know a little bit more. I'm like, yeah, I, I've got three little girls that I chase around the house, and I'm learning how to braid their hair by watching YouTube videos, and, and I change a lot of diapers. And how quickly, how easily do I think of myself in my life? Do I define myself? and describe myself based on what I do. What I aspire to is very different. What I hope to say, what I am challenging myself to say, is to lead not with that I work at a church, but to lead by saying, I'm a Christian. I'm part of God's people. That's who I am. And I like to think that if you were Jewish, that's probably ironically because of the 613 laws what you would do. Because it's obvious who I am. I'm a Jew. I'm part of God's people. And it's made evident by all these things that I do in my life following these 613 laws. When we get to the question of identity, how you see and understand yourself, what defines you, we have to pause and ask the bigger and deeper question, how do I define myself? Is it merely my nine-to-five job? Is it something that happened in my past? either that I did or someone did to me? Is it something in my future that I'm striving for or hoping to do? How do you define yourself? How do you define a Christian? Those are good questions, and it's precisely the questions that Paul and Barnabas in the early church had to deal with. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men came from Judea. They arrived. They began to teach the believers that unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. As far as Paul and Barnabas are concerned, no. You are not defined by what you do. And they argue vehemently against the other position. 
They don't seem to arrive at any consensus because the delegation has to be sent down south, back to the mothership, back down to Jerusalem where the apostles would have been hanging out and, and preaching and teaching and where the elders of the early church would have been. It's kind of that first epicenter place is Jerusalem. And so Antioch sends this group down to find further clarity. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. And then they reported all the amazing things that God had done through them on their missionary journey. They started sharing how not only Jews, but also Gentiles were believing and becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And this is hallelujah stuff. They're going on and sharing the amazing, incredible God story of everything that has happened when they traveled all over modern-day Turkey and in Cyprus and all over. And then as they're hitting these climactic God story moments... Some believers, the ones who belong to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and say, hold your horses, hold on a minute, before you get too excited. All the Gentile converts, they've got to get circumcised. And they've got to be required to follow the law of Moses here. And the early church must take up this big, deep, and penetrating issue of what makes and defines a Christian person? What is the identity, first and foremost, of a Christian? So the apostles, the elders, they meet together in order to resolve and talk through this issue. And it sounds like it's a drawn-out, long meeting because after a long discussion... They take this seriously as they look about this. This has implications for everything that comes. Peter, the same Peter who spoke to Cornelius, stood up and gives a speech. He addresses the crowds. Now, this is a big moment in the story. What is Peter going to say? Out of all the various voices in the early church, there is probably none more significant than this voice, this person. Peter walked with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He was there at his death. He was there at his resurrection. Peter is, is the fisherman. Peter is the Jew. So what is Peter the apostle going to say? Because if he says, yes, they need to get circumcised, literally 2,000 years later, the church might be a little, little less, middle more empty. There just might be more chairs. The implications of what Peter decides now is going to set a trajectory for how the worldwide embrace of the gospel is going to happen. His next words define what a Christian truly is. And you can feel the suspense in the story. Peter stands up and he says this. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. that Jew and Gentile are saved by the undeserved, unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. 
that people are not saved by what they do, by how good they are or how bad they are. They are not saved by any measure of their own accomplishments or their own attempts at achieving salvation or earning God's love. No, that's not how this works, Peter says. People are saved by Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, his resurrection. You, you are saved by Jesus and his undeserved grace. You are not defined by what you have done, what you have not done. You are not defined as a Christian by what you will do in some future. You are defined by Jesus Christ, his love for you, his forgiveness for you, his unmerited, undeserved, overwhelming grace for each one of you. That is what saves and forgives. Jesus and his grace. As proof to you of my own dependency on the grace of Jesus Christ and how much I need it in my own life, if you want to look this up and highlight this in your Bible, it's actually chapter 15, not chapter 14. Because we all make mistakes. But this becomes the heartbeat of Christianity. And it has not changed for 2,000 years. One other individual gets up right after Peter says this. His name is James. He's the brother of Jesus, and he's the local senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he says, yes. In fact, this was always part of God's plan. This is why the Jewish people and the Jewish prophets existed so long ago is so that all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile, would be caught up in the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that makes a Christian. So, for you, as you have to navigate in your Monday, in your tomorrow, all the things waging war for your own attention, trying to define you, all the various cultural and, and political and emotional, all the things that go into trying to get a scrap of your own identity. Make sure that you step forward and say, no, 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 no. Be like Paul, be like Barnabas, be like Peter, be like James, and say, I am defined as a Christian. And as a Christian person, I am defined not by what I have done or have not done, but by what my God has done for me. You are defined by what your God has done for you in and through Jesus Christ and Him alone.
If you want to read more about this tension and this conflict, you can go and reread sometime this week the book of Galatians. It unpacks this in far more detail. A word of encouragement for you to do that. Please come back next week. We will find that Paul sets off on his second missionary journey, so come back and join us as we keep exploring it. But for the moment, let's pray and take confidence that we are each saved. You are saved by the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Holy and everlasting God, this morning we give you our thanks and our praise that in this day you would extend your grace, your goodness into our lives, that you would include us, the Gentiles of today. You would include us in your story of redemption and salvation. For this we give you our thanks, our praise. We raise hallelujah to you. Thank you that it doesn't depend upon our actions, our inaction, our failures, our struggles, our shames, that we are free from those things and instead we are called as your children, claimed by you and your activity in this world, claimed by the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray, help us enjoy the gift of your grace more fully each and every day. Help us enjoy the gift of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a Christian person. Humbly, we pray and ask this Jesus in your holy and precious name. Amen. In response to